0: This is a production of Dirty Mo' Media. They come off of the fourth corner, into the banking of the tri-oval. Bill Parsons has the lead. Bobby Allison running second. If Allison is going to make a move, he's going to have to do it now.
1: It's Parsons in the 29, right on top of Mark Martin.
0: Hey, everybody. My name is Rick Houston, and welcome to another glorious, white-knuckled, God-fearing, spun-out, and half-turned-over racing story. rumors. Sometimes they're true. Sometimes they're not. And sometimes all that gossip and speculation can have a devastating impact on a driver's career. Just ask Phil Parsons. When he first started racing, he was known as the kid brother of 1973 Winston Cup champion Benny Parsons. And that was okay by Phil, who, to this day, knows BP's career stats as well, if not better, than anybody. In 1988, however, Bill came into his own. The 1-2 father-son finish between Bobby and Davey Allison in the 1988 Daytona 500 is one of the most iconic in NASCAR history.
1: Bobby Allison holds him off. They come to the stripe and the winner of the 30th annual Great American Race. Bobby Allison, Davey Allison, his son in second, Judy Allison is
0: static. And finishing in third place that day, just a car length or two off of Davey's rear bumper, was Phil Parsons. That was the season's first restrictor plate race. And then came Talladega. The white flag is out from Harold Kinder, the official starter for NASCAR. And here we go. Point six
1: six miles to go.
0: Will it be one of five drivers? Let's see who wins it. Parsons leads now. Bobby Allison is on the high side of the racetrack.
1: In the practice leading up to the race at Talladega, I mean, everybody in the garage knew that our car was really good. We end up qualifying third, but I remember one of our guys, I don't remember who it was, he drove drove at that time you would drive the car to the gas pumps from the garage area, drive it back if you know if you weren't going to go out to practice. Somebody one of our guys drove the car to the gas pumps, and two or three people lined up behind them because they wanted to draft with us in practice. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just going to the gas pumps. But we knew it was it was really good. I remember Kyle Petty and I in practice on Saturday got together and 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 were really really good. You know, passed some really good cars and, and were able to drive away from some cars. So uh, we knew I, I knew that we would have a great a great chance. But who who knows how things will play out? You know,
0: at the finish this time. It was Phil's turn to hold off Bobby Allison for the win
1: flag as Phil Parsons flashes into turn number one. Allison has moved up to second.
0: Allison has the second spot. Now down at the bottom of the racetrack, Ken Schrader. He's up alongside Jeff Bodine. Bodine won't let him go by quite as easily. As they move down the back chute, Bobby Allison swings low, but Parsons sees him, goes alongside. Now Parsons high. Parsons your leader. Allison is second. Bodine third, then Labani. Parsons leads him off turn four for the final time. Looking for his first win after 110 Winston Cup races. Phil Parsons holding off the challenge of Bobby Allison. Phil Parsons wins the Winston 500. Allison second, Jeff Bodine is third. Further back, a host of cars come across the line, two and three wide, but it's Phil Parsons picking up his very first Winston Cup win ever after 110 starts. Benny Parsons never made it to victory lane at Talladega, but there Phil stood later that day. He was at the very top of his sport. He was a Winston Cup winner.
1: I can't. It, it's, I can't even describe it today. Over 30 years later, I mean, just just the, you, you know, euphoric. I'm 30 years old at, at that time, and it's something i would literally worked my entire life for. Literally worked my entire life for. And I and I was at the time. I said, "Well, this just this is just the start. You know, this is just the start, and, and there's going to be so many more of these. But this this one feels so good. It's the first one."
0: Less than two years later, however, Phil found himself not only out of victory lane, but out of the sport entirely, on the outside looking in. And a rumor had a lot to do with it. As well as 1988 had gone for Phil, circumstances helped push him toward the edge of a cliff the following season. His team was essentially split in half when Leo Jackson began fielding a car for Harry Gant out of a shop in Asheville, North Carolina, while brother Richard Jackson continued to operate Phil's team in Denver, North Carolina, a couple of hours away. To further complicate the situation, crew chief Andy Petrie headed to Asheville with Leo to work with Harry. The changes showed up in the cold, hard numbers of the team's finishes, and as the season wound down, Decided it was time to move on.
1: We'd gotten better every year. Yeah. From the time we started in 83, we gotten better every year. Better results, better finishes, top 10 in points in 88. One Talladega, finished third in the 500, third in the Firecracker 400, second at Wilkesboro. Really, it seemed like we we're on to something. Well, nothing went right in 1989. Nothing went right. Finished fifth in the Daytona 500. I said, okay, well, you know, it's a great start and then the rest of the year was just horrible. I wrecked a lot and we just didn't have the speed and I was trying to carry it on my shoulders and, 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 and couldn't do it. Wrecked a lot, got involved in a lot of wrecks and, and, and I, just did, I just felt like it was it was time to do something different. So uh, I decided towards the end, uh, maybe September or whatever, that, that if there was an opportunity to leave, then, then, then I would leave.
0: Phil signed to drive in 1990 for Morgan McClure Motorsports, a team that had shown flashes of brilliance since entering the sport in the early 1980s.
1: The starting lineup for the 1990 Daytona 500. On the pole for the third straight year, Ken Schrader, and alongside, trying for his first 500 win, Dale Earnhardt. In row four, it's Mark Martin from Arkansas and Phil Parsons. In row
0: five... Phil looked forward to getting a fresh start with a promising organization, but very quickly found himself in the middle of a nightmare. He qualified eighth for the Daytona 500, but was involved in an early crash. More bent sheet metal followed at Richmond and Rockingham, and that was that. After just three races, Phil was released by Morgan McClure. The trio of starts had all resulted in disappointing finishes, but still, it was just three races.
1: Uh, I thought that was a I thought it was going to be a great opportunity. We went to Daytona and were really really fast, and got got involved in a wreck. Uh, uh, Rob Moroso ran into me, and, and he and I and AJ wrecked or whatever. Then we went to I think Richmond might have been next, and I wrecked in practice. Going out to uh, to try to make a my qualifying run, wreck practice, and uh, and then we end up running the race, and then go to Rockham and get involved in a wreck at Rockingham. I mean, just start out as bad as it could start out, and uh, and Larry McClure decided to make a change.
0: It's not hard to imagine Phil's reaction. He was shocked to the very foundation of his being.
1: You know, we talked about. Winning Talladega and how euphoric that was, and that was you know the highlight of my life to that point, or whatever, and thought it was just the beginning. Well, this this was the low point of my life. This was this was by far you know way uh, way harder than when I ran out of money and had to go see Humpy to to try to figure out a, a plan with my life and try to try to stay in racing. This was uh, this was is uh, as, as indescribably Uh, happy I was to win Talladega. This was just the opposite, indescribably distraught over that. It's at this point
0: where rumors and the impact that they had on Phil's career came into play. During the offseason between 1989 and 1990, Phil had cataract surgery on his left eye. The rumor mill took that piece of information and ran with it. Word began to spread that Phil had issues with his eyesight. Speculation began to gather steam. Phil then had serious issues with his eyesight. And then,
1: Phil was all but blind. None of it was true. Well, otherwise, I I mean, I had cataracts, certainly, without a doubt. But it certainly didn't affect me. I still had 20-15 vision, you know, and I didn't lose any peripheral vision or whatever. Uh, but I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where I didn't at the time I wondered if, 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 Larry McClure, uh, cause he was, he was well aware. And I told him, I don't know if he was, uh, I, at the time I said, well, maybe he was trying to use that to justify getting rid of me. And I don't, I don't have confirmation that that ever happened. I don't know that he did. Uh, I always wondered if that was the case. I probably, you know, haven't spoken to him very much since, since 1989. Uh, or 1990, I should say, but uh, I don't know. Honestly, don't know. And there was no truth to it, other than yeah. it certainly was a fact that I had, had had cataract surgery, which the eye doctor was kind of surprised at, at my age that I had a cataract, but it's typically, obviously, with somebody older. So.
0: The next question seemed quite obvious. Did Phil and his wife Marcia have the sense that the talk about his eyesight was damaging to his career? Phil didn't even hesitate
1: before answering. Oh, there, there, there was no, there was no sense to it. Without a doubt, it did.
0: Did people actually mention it to you when you would go talk to a team?
1: So there was a couple that did. Yeah. Really?
0: Mm-hmm. What would they say?
1: We heard that you had a some. You have a vision problem. I said, well, I'll take any any eye test you want to want to take if that's the case. But, but the, but the perception was potentially there.
0: Bill ran a handful of Winston Cup races the rest of the nineteen ninety season but could never find solid footing. The rumor about his eyesight was out there, dogging him. Rather than continuing to face one disappointment after another, Phil and Marsha decided to take matters into their own hands. They formed a team to run in the Bush Series, the very division in which Phil had taken his first major steps toward a career in NASCAR. Back in Darlington, South Carolina, still working the six caution flag of today. Dale Jarrett, being shown as the leader, Bobby Labonte in second place, Earnhardt is third. Phil Parsons running fourth. Good run for Phil. Todd Bodine holding down the fifth spot. Phil scored a fourth-place finish at Darlington in April 1991, in his very first race out of the box with his own team.
1: Marsha and I did some soul searching. Said, "Hey, I don't, I don't see it happening in the Cup Series. I mean." I mean, I talked to people, and I would go to the racetrack and feel like a duck out of water. Try to, you know, try to talk to people about ride. Why don't? What do you think about, you know, getting a bush car, you know, going kind of going back to our roots a little bit, and we'll race it when we can afford to race it. And uh, so that's what we decided to do. We bought a car from uh, from Don Beverly, who who had I'd actually John, Don Beverly and John Dotson started a team in '89. Uh, and I, and we got sponsorship from Skull and Crown Petroleum at the time was my sponsor in the Cup Series. They did, we did like ten or eleven races in nineteen eighty nine. I finished second three times, out of those ten or eleven races. I bought one of those cars that from them that I had run, and we got uh, we got ready, we got it ready over the winter, by, basically by myself, and uh, said we'll we'll run whatever races we can run whenever we can afford to run them if we can find sponsors for whatever the case may be. But at that time there was very there was, you know, I had really nothing going in the cup series whatsoever. So
0: three years later, in May nineteen ninety-four, the team made its way to Charlotte Motor Speedway for the track's annual Bush Series race. The thing was, so did a lot of other hopefuls. Twenty-three cars failed to qualify for the event, but Phil was able to put his entry twelfth on the starting grid. With that many teams in the garage, just making the race was an accomplishment. But the weekend didn't end there for Phil. He passed Mark Martin for the lead with 18 laps to go, and not only did he do that, he rocketed to a margin of victory over Martin of nearly 11 seconds.
1: Phil Parsons will glide that car across the start-finish line. He takes a look at the white flag eases around Tim Fedewa and climbs the banking in one.
0: As he goes into turn one, Mark Martin is coming out of turn four. Phil Parsons, about halfway down the back stretch, he could just take his leg out of it and coast on in, so he just has to negotiate about half of the track. One more time, he's back in turn three. Phil Parsons has open track. He goes into the turn very, very easy. He even lets a couple of lap cars like Tim Fedewa and Bobby
1: Donner catch up with him. Phil Parsons off of turn four for the final time. And in front of the main grandstands here at Charlotte Motor Speedway, Bill Parsons takes a look at the checkered flag and will win the Champions Park Plug 300.
0: Bill had won his first Bush Series race at Bristol in 1982 by passing and then holding off David Pearson. And there he was at Charlotte whooping Mark Martin. When you beat Mark Martin in the Bush Series in the 1990s, you'd truly accomplish something. His Bristol win had been big. And Talladega was even bigger. But then came his crushing release from Morgan McClure Motorsports and the rumors that had followed. At Charlotte, Bill Parsons was back on top, and he liked the view.
1: That was, uh, that was huge. I mean, that was huge. And, and, and we talked about how big it was to win at Bristol. And how big it was to win the, at Talladega, but after what I'd been through, probably the previous five years, I'm not sure that, that that win at Charlotte wasn't wasn't the the most special of my career, honestly.
0: Well, everybody's there. It was Charlotte. Yeah. I don't know that you could have wanted a better track at that time. So
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and 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 again, just I mean, I mean, and then with and we did it. Our, we did it ourselves. I mean, it was our team, Marcia and I's team, and we just, just with a bunch of friends. Again, one full-time employee, you know, and, and just a bunch of people that that just you know, just wanted just wanted to help and wanted to be there and just just friends, you know. It's Parsons the first. Ernie Irvin laps down. Also comes up through. Mark Martin falls to second. Michael Waltrip's in third. So it's Hoosier in first, Goodyear in second and third, Hoosier in fourth and fifth. The checker is down. And is. Bill Parsons is successful. His first win in Grand National Racing since 82. And he drove a heady, bright race, got a lot of
0: good work in the pits. He had one lengthy pit stop, but he was able to come back out, make it up,
1: and take the victory by 10 seconds, Richard. A Pretty over good 10 run. seconds. Yeah, I'd like to say, once he out Mark, he just checked on out of here you know we'll take a commercial and then head for victory lane and meet phil parsons winner of the champion spark 300
0: my name is rick houston and thank you for joining me for this episode of the glorious white knuckled god-fearing spun out and half turned over racing stories podcast check back in with me next week for another one Glorious Racing Stories is a production of Dirty Mo Media, hosted by me, Rick Houston. This show is produced by Andrew Curland. Executive producers Mike Davis and Jason Schultz. Artwork is by Sean Sin. Broadcast audio is credited to MRN, Fox, CBS, PRN, and ABC. and Instagram. Dirty mode. Dirty mode.